the 24th of March and this is On The Record with Gavin Riley with you until one o'clock today. If you want to contact... I did not accidentally summon you, Siri. Please go away. I'm very busy. This is live radio. And that's how you know this isn't pre-recorded. Uh, Gavin Riley with you until one o'clock today. If you want to contact the programme, uh, get in touch. Not via Siri, please, but rather just text us the usual way. 53106. Live radio, people. At a cost of 30 cents. We are also on Twitter at Newstalk FM and at Gav Riley. A very busy show on the way over the next two hours, but we'll start, as we always do, by taking a look at the Sunday newspapers and our panel to do that in studio this morning. Alan Shatter, former Minister for Justice and Defence and former Fine Gael TD. Good morning, Alan. Good morning. Cormac good Lucy. Morning to Siri as well. And to Siri. And Siri will be greeting all of you very shortly if she doesn't get her act together. Uh, Cormac Lucy is a financial columnist and a former advisor to another Minister for Justice. Good morning, Cormac. Hi, Gavin. And Lee's Hand is a columnist with the Ireland edition of The Times. Good morning. Please. Well, that was actually just me throwing my voice, doing my Siri impersonation. And a fine job of it you did thank too. You. Uh, thank you all for coming in to be with us this Sunday morning. Uh, a quick tour of the front pages of the Sunday papers. Uh, Sunday Independent, negative equity to end next year, it says. Uh, negative equity will finally end next year, sparking a new wealth effect and increasing consumer spending on luxury goods. The surge in spending is expected to be fuelled by borrowers relieved of the burden of negative equity while making their mortgage repayments. That's the front page of the Sunday Independent, which also says that the FAI is the subject of an official complaint lodged with the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement, uh, more about which in a few minutes' time. Uh, The front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday, I was abused by my uncle Bishop Casey, a niece of the late Bishop Eamon Casey, claims she was raped and sexually abused by him from the age of five for more than a decade. The Irish Mail on Sunday can also reveal that two other allegations of child sexual abuse by Bishop Casey led to separate settlements, one through the Residential Institutions Redress Board, to women who accused him of abusing them as children in the 1950s and 1960s. Sunday Business Post. Draghi blasts government's repossession plan and warns that mortgage rates could rise, which is probably bad news for those who are hoping to get out of negative equity. The European Central Bank has warned that efforts to protect borrowers in arrears from repossession could push up mortgage rates and lead to moral hazard. The ECB has also warned that the proposed legislation, which would allow courts a say on home repossession, could lead to unnecessarily high levels of bad loans clogging up the financial system and undermine the bank's ability to lend. The opinion was delivered by the ECB President Mario Draghi to the government last Last month, relating to a bill first proposed by Junior Minister Kevin Boxer-Moore, and it would require the courts to take into account the personal circumstances of a borrower before issuing a repossession order. Uh, below the fold there, a really interesting story by Hugh O'Connell and Killian Woods. Fine Gael lobbied European allies to drop tax and EU army plans. Fine Gael had to lobby its European political allies to drop plans for EU tax harmonisation and an EU army for their election manifesto. It has emerged. Um, Cormac is writing about something sort of along those lines in the Sunday Times. Uh, we'll get to that in just a few minutes time as well. Um, Sunday Mirror uh, leads with the story which is uh, on the front of most of the papers today. Delaney quits as FAI chief. Boss steps down from top job amid 100k loan controversy under fire John Delaney sensationally quit as FAI boss last night the 51 year old stepped down from his 360,000 euro a year role but has taken up another position within the association and I suppose you could quibble as to whether it's correct to describe it as quitting because uh, by some people's accounts it actually looks like he might have been promoted Um, and the Sunday World uh, leads with a picture of the uh, Greenvale Hotel in 2013 uh, and what it shows was um, what it claims was teen disco tragedy waiting to happen it shows some of the overcrowding um, at the same St. Patrick's Day event in 2013 as happened last Sunday which unfortunately led with the tragic deaths of those three people and the Sunday Times is the one I'm coming to last uh, deliberately um, FAI Chief John Delaney steps aside amid financial queries but it outlines to explain um, that John Delaney 
who last night quit as chief executive of the Football Association of Ireland, has been living in houses rented by the association for much of the past decade. This perk was in addition to his annual salary of €360,000. The cash-strapped association has been paying €3,000 a month to rent a house for Delaney in Wicklow from the broadcaster Gorny Shoga, as it happens, since 2016. It's understood that Delaney did play pay benefit and kind tax on the value of the accommodation uh, and a few years ago the FAI paid rent of just under €3,000 a month for Delaney to live in a house in Malahide. Uh, now before we uh, talk to Mark Tig about this we're going to talk to him in just a second but want to pay you a very quick piece of audio. This is John Delaney speaking to News Talk's Vincent Wall um, only a few weeks ago uh, about what his own future was within the organisation. I think at the moment there's so many big projects on our table in this particular year We've, we're actually we're implementing our, our own strategy of the FAI, which will uh, finishes up in 2020. So we've got to look at that in the summer and do a new strategy document for the association. We have the under 21 euro bid with Northern Ireland uh, for 2023. And we're 100 years in football in 2021. So there's a lot of big projects on board. Um, and we'll take a view at some stage, of course, when, 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 when your time is going to come up. But with those projects on board, you've got to pick the right time. Uh, that is John Delaney speaking to News Talk's Vincent Wall on uh, Business Breakfast at uh, some point only in the last couple of weeks. And you'll notice there that he said that that strategic review of the FAI was going to be concluded at some point in the middle of 2020. Clearly has now been brought forward a little bit more. We'll play you more from that conversation, by the way, in the next hour uh, here on On The Record. In the meantime, we are joined on the line by Mark Tighe, who's a reporter with The Sunday Times, who has uh, today's front page story. Uh, Mark, good morning to you. Um, can you just guide listeners, for people who haven't heard the story yet or haven't uh, had a chance to read it, can you talk people through exactly what you're reporting this morning? Well, obviously, with John Delaney uh, stepping aside from Chief Executive, we are working last week. We put queries into John Delaney and the FAI on Friday about another aspect of it, the FAI's finances. And in particular, we're looking at a perk of the job that hadn't been reported before in that the FAI had been paying uh, accommodation costs for houses rented by John Delaney over the last decade. So we're reporting on um, two houses, one in Kilmacano, which is rented from Grania Shoiga in uh, last uh, three years for €3,000 a month and a previous house in Malahide which is rented for just under €3,000 a month. This was a kind of a perk for the CEO, um, something that he would have had to pay uh, benefit and kind tax on and we understand that was the case but it's a kind of a, along with a €360,000 um, a year salary, this is another kind of perk of the job and uh, we've spoken to Fran Rooney, a previous chief executive of the FBI mm. and we asked you know, did any such perk exists in your time? And he said, no, absolutely not. Um, I, I, the FBI never made any such payments for my, my accommodation when I was CEO back in 2003-2004. So the FAI has been paying, uh, for most of the last decade, was paying €3,000 a month for his accommodation on top of a salary which uh, peaked at close to half a million euro, was it? €450,000 was the, the peak, yeah. And like obviously there were... Um, the FAI went through, publicly acknowledged, went through hard, very hard times um, after 2010, 2011, 2012, when staff were made redundant and um, staff were, had to make uh, pay cuts or were, were given pay cuts of 5 and then 10%. And John Delaney uh, took voluntary pay cuts then to his current level of €360,000 per annum. Um, but yeah, so these payments for his accommodation during this time... Um, they were under 3,000 and then up to 3,000 euro more recently. Um, that They've been paid for the majority of that time. Our investigation has established. Have you been able to get any response from the FAI as to why they deemed it appropriate, when it wasn't the case for, for Frank Rooney, as you said, why they deemed it appropriate for them to subsidise the cost of John Delaney's living arrangements when his salary was so big? No, 
um, we put the queries into the F- John Delaney um, on Friday um, and to the FAI press officer, and we've had no response whatsoever. Do you know who sanctioned it? No, obviously these, we had asked the questions. You know, who did sanction it? Why was it appropriate? Um, and you know, we've had no no response to, to that. From from our inve- investigation, you know, this was a, we we understand this was just regarded as a perk of the job for John Delaney and. Um, no, we're not saying there was anything illegally illegal done here. You know, I think it was it was put through the books as as it should be in these kind of situations um, with companies who do this kind of thing for their staff and um, benefit in kind would have been paid. But so we're not we're not saying anything illegal was done here. But we're saying you know this is a quite a substantive um, perk of the job that that most people wouldn't have known about previously. Well, I certainly think that uh, even as a statement of fact that it would be questionable why a man who's on the salary that he is would also need to have a, a condition arranged where his, his own living arrangements are being subsidised to this degree as well. Um, separate to all of that, Mark, you do also have uh, further details this morning of the story that you broke this time last week around the €100,000 bridging loan that John Delaney had provided uh, back in April 2017. And you've now been able to, to confirm or, or to be able to disclose exactly why that funding was needed. Yeah, so this is uh, last Saturday, John Delaney took an emergency high court um, application to try and jump to Sunday Times from publishing the story about his 2017 uh, €100,000 cheque he made out to his employer, which was then repaid two months later in 2017. So from, from our investigation, we've been able to establish that you know there was quite a crisis of, um, of cash flow in the FAI to such an extent that there was concerns that they wouldn't be able to meet their payroll, basic payroll costs in 2017 when this loan was made. Now, we... We, we still haven't been able to understand completely why um, they didn't, couldn't go for an overdraft in, in one of their bank accounts with the Bank of Ireland, but I, I, we, we understand there was concerns that, the, that those overdraft facilities were maxed out. But, you know, for st- there's still questions about this 100,000 loan as in terms of it's, it's quite a small amount for an organisation that has a turnover of 50 million well, euros I was just year. going to say, because obviously in the light of your reporting last week, many people were looking at the FAI's accounts, including myself, an organisation that has net cash income of 50 million a year you would think ought to be fairly well insulated against uh, an acute short-term pressure like that. You'd, you'd imagine that is the case, yeah. And that's why, um, you know, the, the Rocks Committee of Sport is so eager to get John Delaney and the FAI in to explain this and why Sport Ireland uh, and Minister Shane Ross have you know, sought urgent clarification on this. You know, what was this um, rapid decline in the FAI's finances at a time when John Delaney has been saying, you know, that their finance is actually in good stead and they can pay down their debts in a sustainable way and actually get rid of their stadium debt, which is, you know, at one stage, peak at 70 million euro for the Viva Stadium. He 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 said repeatedly that that debt will be cleared by next year, 2020. Um, you know, so why why the need for this hundred thousand payment? And then more recently, then when when we succeeded in fighting off the injunction application, John Delaney revealed that he's voluntarily contributed 160,000 euro uh, from his UEFA payment, mm. uh, which started last year, to the FAI. So you know, is that another um, payment that? The FAI are, are are needing is you know to essentially keep them above water. Mm. So for, uh, further questions still need to be answered. You know? One final question for you, Mark: Do we know at this point yet whether in his new guise as executive vice president, whether John Delaney is still answerable to or likely to attend the Oireachtas Committee when it holds the hearings with the FAI in a couple of weeks' time? That, no, that, we haven't had any clarity on that. Like the FAI weren't answering any questions other than releasing that kind of long statement last night outlining John Delaney's new role and the fact that the FAI board had voted unanimously to. Uh, create that role and, get, and give it to him and you know a lot of questions about how that position you know isn't isn't wasn't something that was publicly advertised or you know a recruitment process went to it was kind of a very much a, a, a vehicle for him to step aside from CEO into this seamless new role you know which mm. where he retains actually a lot of the powers that 
a chief executive would normally have. OK, we're going to leave it there. Mark Tighe from the Sunday Times, thank you very much for joining us this morning on On The Record. Uh, Cormac Lucy, while you've been listening to that, uh, a thought has crossed your mind as to exactly how this should have been uh, dealt with from an accounting point of view. Well, there's a fundamental principle of company law. It's that the company accounts are an opportunity for the directors of a company to show the shareholders that they have been managing the entity in a, in a competent fashion. And a subset of that is any direct dealings that directors have with companies have to be itemised in full in the company accounts. These are related party transactions. And it would seem to me, based on the news we've just got, that neither the fact that John Delaney was having his rental costs fully paid for by the FAI, nor the fact that he had given this 100,000 loan featured in those accounts in, in 2017 for the FAI. And on the face of it, that would appear to be a breach of company law. And there's another issue, which is if you're the auditors auditing the 2017 accounts, one of the procedures that is typically followed is that the auditors will require directors to sign a letter saying that the draft financial statements Mm. fully cover all of their dealings. So there's probably a letter in Deloitte's office sitting somewhere where John Delaney has signed off on incomplete disclosure when he must have known that this loan was out there and secondly that he was getting his accommodation paid for by the FAI as well. Um, Lise, all of this can be dealt with on a very high level corporate thing. Do you think that most people, obviously aside from the fact that John Delaney has often been treated as something of a pantomime villain anyway, uh, will it actually matter much to your average Irish soccer fan? Will they be at all bothered? I mean, the fact that John Delaney is no longer the chief executive, will it actually change their match day experience or they're not more likely or less likely to show up and shout for the team, are they? Probably probably not on the great scheme of things, but I think anybody who, say, follows League of Ireland, you know, will be very aware that over the years there's been a, I suppose, a, a dis, you know, a completely disparate level. I mean, you have some clubs who have literally struggled to pay the players, you know, from time to time. You have um, the issue with the women's uh, Ireland football team a couple of years ago where, you know, they threatened strike because they just had you know inadequate funds just to go do the day by day fund their day by day activities and then you have these enormous sums of money been been bandied about you know 360,000 you know in, in, you know back in in 2012 he took a cut from i think 400,000 you know to sort of show willing that he was mm. prepared to tighten his belt as well. Um, you know, so it's just people, slightly undermined, though, by the fact that we now know that the organisation was still paying for his rent. Well, I mean, yes, this is exactly it. Uh, so, you know, and then I presume there's various bits and bits and bobs he gets from UEFA, from UEFA as well. So, you know, you're looking at an, an enormous, I mean, he gets a bigger salary than the Taoiseach for a start. He gets, a, you know, I mean, if you just think about it. And by the way, you know, the longevity of his stay, I think, is something that's quite interesting. If you look at the hoo-ha that was over Michael D running for a second term after, you know, for the presidency after he said he wouldn't. Mm. And this lad has been in situ for quite a long time. And, you know, I think it actually begs the question, you know, what is it about men and, you know, top sporting positions? I mean, if you look at the, you know, Sepp Latter was there for, you know, head of... <laughs> who was I'm sure head he'll appreciate that comparison. Ages. And, you know, I mean, you have this sort of, you know, it's obviously just such a great job. Nobody ever wants to leave it. But... I, I'm not sure, you know, I think when you when people look at the ordinary game, 
play to grassroots level and the fights that they have to to get funding. And then they look at the massive amount of figures when bandied about. You know, people don't like that kind of thing. They don't accept it in politics and I don't think they're necessarily going to accept it as a head of a sporting body either. Alan, you sat at the Cabinet table for five years while the FAI was given uh, fairly significant taxpayer uh, support each of those years, roughly about €5 million Euro a year. So over the course of the, 20, of the €25 million Euro that would have been paid during your tenure in government, uh, would you have ever thought that uh, a good deal of that money was going towards subsidising John Delaney's living arrangements? Well, the first day I was only at the cabinet table for three years. So that's oh, scale, sorry. Scale Ella. Yes, um, we'll, we'll come back to that one later. Look, sorry. I, I don't know the detail of this, and nor does anyone else. I mean, the truth is, uh, there's, his salary has been known for a long time. Uh, I don't understand, frankly, why uh, someone who's effectively an employee of the FAI with the level of annual income the FAI had from the different sources that it derives it, I can't fathom why John Delaney would have had to lend the FAI €100,000. It makes no sense to me. Uh, so I, I think we can all speculate about this. Uh, but but the truth is no one knows what was going on, why it was going on. And quite clearly, there's a need for some clarity for the very speci- two specific reasons. One, the FAI is in receipt annually of substantial public funds. And secondly, I think the, the, the ordinary supporter of soccer in Ireland and the clubs, as mentioned by these, are entitled to know really uh, what's going on with finances and there should be transparency. But coming to the question you asked earlier, mm. I'm not sure that the average supporter will be all that engaged with this. I think the concern of the average supporter, frankly, is the uh, you know how Mick McCarthy is going to get on as the new manager. Um, why Ireland last night only managed to win 1-0 <laughs> against Gibraltar, who, with all due respects to them, are very, very low down they in are. the pond of international soccer teams. Uh, how we're going to do in the new in the new set coming, second coming of Mick McCarthy and what's going to happen against Georgia on Tuesday. I think that's uh, what the average soccer supporter is concerned about. As a soccer supporter, I'm concerned and have been for some years about another aspect of this, which I think really is a time we should start a public discussion around this. Uh, on the whole island of Ireland, there's been so much enjoyment and pride taken in the way the rugby team plays and the way it's performed internationally. And uh, it has uh, support from uh, every part of this island, uh, north and south. It doesn't matter what tradition you come from. And Irish soccer is always going to be uh, poor, uh, both north and south. The international teams north and south are always going to be struggling because of the small numbers of of really top-notch players Mm. available to them. And uh, my regret, frankly, when it comes to Irish soccer, is there's too much vested interest both within the FAI in the Republic of Ireland and with the IFA in North of, uh, North of Ireland for people to sit down and talk what should be happening, which is an All-Ireland Soccer League, a uh, single Irish soccer team, and... Uh, move on from where we are. If it can be done in rugby, it should be done in soccer. And I think ultimately, whatever the worries and concerns are around some of the tribalism that exists within soccer, uh, we need someone to take that by the scruff of the neck and tackle that issue. And I think then soccer will become a much more popular support and more profitable for the FAI and perhaps they'll then need less public funds. Uh, Cormac, the point that Anna made there about the vested interests that might stop a United Ireland soccer team from happening, is that ultimately going to be the, the, the point at which that project falls short? And I think politics, you know, I, I think the rugby situation just evolved. It, it was an All-Ireland team before partition but, but, happened. But I'm pretty sure that soccer is actually the only sport, certainly the only uh, mainstream sport, which is actually governed on a partitioned basis at all. 
And it actually was nothing to do with the partition of Ireland. It was actually just the fact that there was a civil war within the movement and that the uh, the Belfast-based organisation was too northern focused and it's been too unpopped up in Dublin. But ultimately, that that's a total tangent that I didn't expect, <laughs> much like Siri's intervention earlier on. Um, <laughs> but uh, that ultimately, uh, that, you know, soccer is actually an aberration in terms of how it is managed by two separate bodies and surely it ought it to is, follow them up. It is, but the soccer omelette has been made and, and trying to get the omelette back into raw eggs, which is the state we find the IRFU in, where a united uh, island sport organisation was never divided and prosperous today. You know, we, 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 what's happened has happened and trying to undo it, I, I would imagine, would be enormously difficult because you'd have, essentially, you would have unionist politicians in Northern Ireland uh, portraying this as the thin end of a reunification wedge that they are opposed to. And uh, the, 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 it, It's a great idea. I support the idea. I support national reunification. But I fear this, uh, if, if it was pushed aggressively, would, would just stoke up uh, more political resentment. Uh, I, d- I disagree with that. I think then we're giving in to the old sort of hopeless view that nothing on this island can ever change. I think uh, having a, a, a single soccer team representing the island of Ireland is no more politically complex than having a single rugby team. And we all get over it by whatever uh, tunes have to be played, uh, to be put it crudely, before games commence. And, and then people get on with it. And uh, I do think, uh, look, I used to attend League of Ireland soccer matches. I've given it up for many years because, frankly, the standard is so dreadful uh, and you're, you're really taken with all the Premier League stuff on, on TV. But there's a need to give soccer on this island a kick in the pants. There's a need to move away from presumptions that nothing can ever change and take the politics out of it. This isn't about politics. I don't believe it's about politics. I believe it's about people at this stage of the game who like being in positions and they like feeling important and they have tickets for internationals and you have the two teams playing but you know like Northern Ireland did a bit better in their match in the last couple of days than perhaps we did even though mm. we won in Gibraltar but but th- there's a need to address this in a sporting context and I, and I don't think I don't think this is all that politically difficult. I don't think we should even bring politics into it. Look, uh, having a single uh, rugby team hasn't created a united Ar- borderless mm. Ireland um, and a single <coughs> soccer team won't have that impact. Well, yet. I think going Please. back to you know the, the whole notion of soccer and politics, I think one of the interesting questions that comes out of this um, is that with the um, John Delaney's sideways move or upwards move will he now attend the Oireachtas Committee next month on sport because It's a, a great and still remaining an open question Which that still remains an open question I mean he was due in before the Sports Committee on uh, April the 3rd and the, you know on that Oireachtas Committee are a couple of TDs who have been pretty robustly taking a very robust interest in all matters to do with the FAI you've had Catherine Murphy, Murphy the Independent and mm. Noel Rock from Fine Gael Noel Rock who we're speaking to in the next hour Right. Well, you know, both of both of them have sort of, you know, taken active interest in the goings on in, in the FAI. And I think there was a great uh, sense of anticipation about uh, his his arrival into this, even though he is on record of describing Iraq's committees as, quote unquote, a sideshow. Um, so I think I think it's very important that he that no matter what fancy schmancy title he now has, that he still, you know, he, he still still appear and answer questions about his tenure. Uh, in the position and what went on therein. So I, I think there would, there would need to be a bit of clarity about that fairly quickly for a start. And I think, you know, going back to Alan's point, mm. I think probably Mick McCarthy was probably quite grateful to John Delaney <laughs> yesterday He's like, because it certainly, took, excuse, it certainly it? took the attention <laughs> off the rather, the rather grim right. affair in Gibraltar yesterday. Uh, we, we'll leave it at that for the time being. Uh, Dave is
tweeted, by the way, to say that it's disingenuous and a bit dismissive of the guests to suggest that the average supporter will not be engaged in the Delaney matter. I think the point that I was making, Dave, is that, you know, even as a season ticket holder myself, I'm still going to go to the game in Georgia on Tuesday night, irrespective of who the CEO is. And you'd like to think that you always had and always will. Um, and I also see Seamus Dooley of the NUJ uh, speculating on Twitter whether the FAI will now have to fork out for Oris on Lasso to run. Uh, now that John Delaney has taken up his new title uh, we will talk about the the, uh, the possibility of a United Ireland soccer or otherwise whether it'll be a member of the Commonwealth or otherwise uh, and more when we're back with the panel after this I'm sorry Michal but hurling from the ditch isn't a policy conspiracy theories do not constitute analysis and finger wagging isn't a solution to anyone's problems <laughs> Uh, a little bit of Leo Varadkar speaking to what you can clearly hear as an enthused party faithful at uh, White's Hotel in Wexford last night speaking at the Fine Gael National Conference. Uh, Lee's hand, it seemed like you can either, when you're making a speech like that, you can either speak to the party faithful or to the broader public. Uh, mm-hmm. Fair to say that Leo Varadkar was speaking to the party faithful with that one? Oh yes, I think you could hear the uh, the drumbeat, uh, the, elect- the election drumbeat uh, on the far horizon. I think... You know, sometimes he does the, you know, Tishi use this this particular opportunity to do the big vision thing. You mm. know, this is what I see for the future. This was very much pressing the buttons that the, the grassroots would like. You know, he had to kick off Michal, Michal Martin. He had a right L scalp from uh, off Sinn Féin, um, including a couple of, you know, well-worked lines as in, you know, they don't have any respect for the Gardaí, they don't have any respect for the courts mm. or for uh, parliaments. Oh, including the greatest the ones, hits. Yeah. Yes, you know, including the parliaments they turn up for, which, you know, got a good cheer. Um, so this was very much a case of playing to of, of, of playing to the gallery of rallying the troops because let's face it, you know, we don't know when there's going to be an election because like everything else, you know, every piece of government, almost every piece of government buildings in government buildings, of legislation is sort of, you know, stacked over, you know, literally stacked over the parliament, like, you know, planes over Heathrow and Russia, and nothing's able to land because we don't know what's happening with Brexit. So this is really keeping people on message, saying there is an election coming, we don't know when it is. But, you know, keep the faith. Um, I think a lot of this is also to rally troops and, you know, be with with keeping mm. in mind that the local elections and the European elections are coming up in the end of May and Fine Gael are going to have to do well. You know, they they took a bit of a kicking the last time out and they're going to have to make up some seats this time. I think Leo Varadkar needs a win, an electoral win in these before he goes to to a general election. But, you know, the thing about Leo is he uses, he needs his language to to bump up the message because he's not the greatest at delivering a speech. I mean, no Roman orator is going to be turning over in their grave, you know, listening to Leo uh, giving but full actually, flight well, to his words. Last night know? was actually the best of his three, but I think yeah, you make a good point that he doesn't <laughs> yeah, exactly lift people out of their low. seats. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's not one to really inspire, you know, with his sort of, you know, with his charisma. So he kind of needs to, be, to, to to nail a few big points and, you know, to the course of a speech. Cormac, your thoughts on the speech last night? Did you see it? No, I didn't. Uh, I was recovering from having watched Ireland's glorious victory in Gibraltar. <laughs> yeah, what to lie down uh, in the so dark I, I, room. I recovered by turning off the television. Celebratory mode. Exactly. I think if, if, if Brexit is moving towards a resolution, and that's a big if, because it's mm. not clear to me that, that there is a clear resolution, even though the EU have now set a pretty clear timetable. Uh, if Brexit were got off the table, on the big decision basis, well, then there would be the possibility for a general election. Suddenly, all of these issues that have been on hold could come onto the agenda. You don't see Fianna Fáil's support as being tenable if if Brexit is 
inverted commas, resolved? I think it is tenable uh, and and they seem to have extended their support uh, to the end of this year. But uh, if Leo wants a general election and if Brexit has been resolved, well, then it could be possible to have a general election. Uh, so, but I'm not, I'm not at all sure that a general election would substantially change the composition of Doyle Air. And it might, there might be fewer independents. Mm. There might be more seats for the established parties. Uh, but essentially, you, you'd still have the same choice. And I think you would end up with two out of any three of Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and Sinn Féin could form a, a, a stable government in parliamentary number mm. terms. Uh, and the big question wouldn't be so much the outcome of the election as the outcome of the post-election jockey coalitionology. Yeah. Um, Alan Shatter, uh, as a former member of the Parliamentary Party, what did you make of the speech last night? I think there's a s- semi-standard template for the leader speeches. I've heard those Leo by numbers for many, for many years. Um, he, he followed the template. Uh, you get it. Uh, where it's an Arth Eshner, you call it a conference this time round, mm. you get the most loyal, decent group of Fine Gael supporters in the country turn up. Uh, and I think the leader of the party has a role in, in talking to them as well as the rest of the country. Uh, and I think uh, that's what, what Leo Radic was you doing s- You last seem night. underwhelmed then. Um, well, I think you need to d- go further than that. Uh, I, I think you need to um, you, you need to say something that inspires the electorate, those who aren't ca- card-carrying members of the Fine Gael party. And you, 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 de- you should deliver the speech always with the knowledge that most people in the population have other things to do on a Saturday night than uh, watching uh, your speech. Mm. But that if you can strike a particular note, uh, you say something momentous or interesting that's picked up and people start noticing. Now, the, the, really, last night's speech, right at the end of it, had something that... Uh, I don't know whether it be commented on or not, but I think it's of some importance. Uh, right at the end of it, he said two things. He said that um, that, that uh, this country wouldn't be defined by Brexit. And he stated that, um, that after Brexit, uh, we're free to determine our own destiny. Uh, and really the implication was that he wouldn't be defined by Brexit. Now, we can have conversation shortly mm. around this table about where Brexit might go. Um, but I have absolutely no doubt when it comes to the next general election, uh, how Brexit works out will define to a degree the public's perception of Leo Varadkar's Taoiseach because uh, whereas the public <coughs> may want not be engaged in the detail, they will be impacted by the consequences of Brexit. And to suggest that uh, Ireland is free to determine its own destiny is useful rhetoric, but total nonsense, Uh, because our destiny is going to be substantially determined in the coming years by the outcome of Brexit and our interaction with the European Union. Well, on a somewhat related note, uh, Theresa May was given a lambasting for making a televised speech on Wednesday night in which she completely dumped all over the only people that can help her to get what she wants over the line. How is it any more wise for Leo Varadkar to do the same last night? Well, what what he did last night, look, I'm coming back to the template again. You're talking about dumping. This government is entirely dependent on Fianna Foyle for its continuing existence. And of course, when we had the recent Fianna Foyle uh, version of what Fine Gael was doing last night, Micheál Martin, uh, genuflected in the direction of the Fianna Foyle template by giving Fine Gael a kick. So last night, <laughs> Leo Varadkar gave... Uh, Fianna Foyle a kick back uh, and that's all grist to the mill for these events but um, it's not a great idea to be um, uh, uh, let me rephrase this I took a view back in 2016 and then 2017 
that uh, there was a need to constructively engage with the British government in the context of the complexities of Brexit, uh, to not quite wave the green flag as much as we need to, uh, uh, or as much as we might be tempted to, to rephrase that, in the context of local electoral gain. And it, it, it remains my view uh, that there's nothing to be gained by sniping because one of the big problems we have here is that the backstop was invented to avoid a no-deal Brexit. Mm. And if we have a no-deal Brexit, the backstop will have laid the foundation for that result and its following consequences. So, so you know, we should all at the moment be usually concerned about the chaotic, chaotic political environment in England, the complete incapacity, not just of the Parliament, of the Cabinet, mm. to adopt a coherent view. But we shouldn't look at this as if this is some victory for Ireland, because frankly, if this isn't sorted out in a manner that ensures uh, economic connectivity, to use a totally neutral word, mm. continuing between Ireland and the UK, we uh, and the UK and the European Union, Ireland is part of that. We have a big problem, and there are problems the people aren't addressing arising out of all of this. If if, if the UK fall out of uh, the EU now on the new date on the twelfth of April, there's a broad range of other issues that are getting no uh, uh, reference at all, such as what's going to happen with continuing extradition. What's going to happen with the enforcement of court judgments? What's going to happen with the exchange of data on criminal issues between uh, the UK and Ireland and the UK and the rest of Europe? The government say it's well, all contained in the Omnibus Bill, that it's all legislated for. No, it's not as simple as that. And the, um, the Omnibus Bill touches on the extradition issue. But what everyone is missing is we're effectively reintroducing into Irish law in our relationship with the UK, the Extradition Act of 1965, which creates great complexities mm-hmm. in dealing with these issues. Uh, so, so there's a whole range of other in impacts here that are hugely concerning and um, we need the UK to get its act together or we need the can to be further kicked down well, the road <laughs> before the 12th of April because if it's not none of us should be sanguine about consequences and it is not a political victory for Leo Varadkar or the current government Well we'll talk about uh, how for much further the can might be kicked uh, in just a moment because I do need to take a break but just before I do um, Lise you're paying mm. obviously very close attention to what was said over the weekend there seems to be uh, almost uh, an ad hoc civil war within Fine Gael as to whether they were applauding or not applauding Geoffrey Donaldson when he suggested yesterday that perhaps the Republic ought to be a member of the Commonwealth uh, I can't understand why people in Fine Gael will be all that bothered about it considering the Commonwealth is effectively an entirely meaningless body anyway. Yeah, I, it's one of those odd little rows that just erupts every now and then, almost, you know, like a sort of a side thing. And you, there, there was, there is contention over, you know, whether they were actually applauding Geoffrey Donaldson's remarks about Ireland should rejoin the Commonwealth or something else. Mm. But that's really, you know, it's a, it's a side issue because if you, you know, if you look at, OK, look at the Commonwealth for a start. I mean, it's almost, I think, 70 years Next month yeah, since, the, since, since we, we left, anyway. yeah, um, and you know, oddly enough, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So you know, essentially, it's what fifty-three, you know, sovereign nations that are yeah. in this sort of loose alliance makes but up it's a one club. point. It's, yeah, it's, it's one point two billion members of a, of, a, of a you know, which is a pretty substantial number of a club. Um, I, the sticking point, I think, obviously, with most Irish people on this issue would be that the effective you know president of the club is is uh, the queen. I think that's you know a lot of people can. And get past that. So, but you know, if you look at this in the wider context, you have the members of the DUP coming down to speak at, at fin, uh, you know, at Finnegal conference. You have Fianna Fáil in some kind of arrangement that nobody can quite figure out what it is with the SDLP. Mm. Um, and at the same time, you know, you've people talking about 
you, you know, United Ireland and border poles and so on. Well, you know, this would be a new reality. I mean, if there was a United Ireland, you are going to have members of the possibly, you know, members of the DUP in government, essentially. Yeah. So, you know, I think that there's a people need to get over themselves on this, I think, and accept that if you're going to look at a new political post-Brexit reality where perhaps, you know, a, a border poll will be fast tracked to mm. try and insulate the island from chaos. You know, we're going to have to get over ourselves and actually stop okay. being so sensitive about, you know, the, the, you know, seeing northern, you know, politicians rampaging around the Republic, you know. <laughs> uh, rampaging. There, there's a verb that I'm sure some people <laughs> will have an issue with. Uh, speaking of things being kicked down the road, uh, we have kicked Brexit further down the running order even further. So we're going to get to that after the break, which I think will possibly be a new record for how long it's taken us to get there. Back in a moment. Well, I'm not, I said this isn't about individuals. This is about getting the process right and making sure we have the right outcome. I'd prefer it to be the Prime Minister's deal, but if it can't be the Prime Minister's deal, then it has to be a deal. Philip Hammond, the British Chancellor of the Exchequer, speaking to Sky News uh, a little earlier today uh, when he was talking about the personalities. What he was referring to is a slew of uh, British front pages this morning, all of which seem to suggest, uh, Lee, that Theresa May's, uh, aside from the Brexit clock ticking, that her own clock is, is ticking there too. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they really, if, they make for grim reading if you're, if, if for any supporter, you know, the dwindling numbers of uh, Theresa May. I mean, they, they paint an extraordinary, the, the British papers paint an extraordinary picture of the isolation of the Prime Minister this weekend. And if you look back, you know, looking back at the last week, it was an extraordinary week. You know, if you start with John Burkow, then you go to her her absolute and utter, you know, self-destruct, uh, self-destruction inside 10 Downing Street when she, uh, you know, literally left, you know, laid waste to her own uh, to her own party colleagues. Mm. And then, of course, the sort of the extraordinary story of her, her trip to, to Brussels and all the sort of details, those vivid details about having to, you know, cool her heels in a room on the ninth floor for four hours while the fate of Britain was decided by the EU27. You know, then a return home and then, you know, the rumbling start and then the knives are out. And it's it is quite extraordinary. And, the, you know, the, the Tim Shipman has a piece in The Sunday Times, a big two page read, and it is full of the most astonishing quotes and astonishing there's, details. There's some real dynamite in there, isn't there? I mean, there's there's lines, you know, one says when uh, talking, uh, one observer talked about it was like the merge on the Orient Express in which each character plunges in the knife when he was describing, um, you know, a cabinet meeting that, you know, a meeting they'd had with sort of all her key supporters. And uh, another and another one which just was extraordinary and I was a bit uneasy about it because it was a bit of the sort of hysterical woman about it. Excuse me. But um, one insider was saying that uh, that uh, some of her um, colleagues were, were so they were so concerned about her collapsing uh, at the ballot box, basically, that they um, put a protocol place, a protocol plan in, in place and they had to plan if she fainted to get her out of there. I mean, this is it is just the most it is the most extraordinary narrative of just the crumbling of a of a career the mm. the you know the slow disintegration of now actually the fast disintegration of of a political party of uh, a do- of of a parliament in chaos and it is quite remarkable that if they hadn't got the extension, um, we would now be six days six away days from away. them, five days away from them cr- you know, crashing out um, of the EU. Alan, you were telling us uh, off air that um, you have a little bit of experience of working with Theresa May because you were uh, Minister for Justice at the time that she was Home Secretary. Mm. What did you make of her at the time? Um, Can you sit my in a pers- bit perspective was that she was um, just had a, an odd personality, but that's not unusual with politicians. No. 
But she was obsessed with the immigration issue. And uh, you could sit down and have a conversation with her. And during the Irish presidency, for example, she wanted changes made to European Union rules with regard to freedom of movement because of the obsession that they developed about East Europeans coming into Britain. Uh, and uh, I asked her to set out to avoid a big conflict in Europe to get a detailed position paper done uh, because the, the narrative in places like the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, was that all of this emigration was costing Britain a fortune. And to cut a long story short, uh, she agreed to do a position paper um, and it didn't appear during the course of our presidency, but uh, there was a newspaper leak of whatever was in the position paper from one of the British papers, might have been the Independent, mm. uh, in the autumn. And the leak was when the position paper was prepared, they discovered that uh, the UK was a net beneficiary from emigration. In other words, the people coming in were all working, paying their taxes, and the and the impact they had on the health service uh, uh, basically wasn't such that Britain was losing out in any shape or form, apart from the numbers of of them who were actually working in the health service and it was promptly buried. Now, I, I mean, I take a view of Theresa, which is that um, she used the emigration issue because at the end of uh, European Council meetings, even when it was discussed in private, mm. uh, she'd pop up on the front page of the Daily Express or, or, or the English version of, of the Daily Mail uh, fighting emigration. And uh, although she was a Remainer when we went into, the, or when they went into their referendum, she had helped laid the foundation uh, for the uh, Brexiteers being successful. I would have had conversations both with her and indeed with Chris Grayling mm. uh, in the 2013, uh, 2012, 2013 period about the dangers to the Conservative Party in adopting the UKIP narrative. And the internal politics of this was that uh, the Conservatives were ter terrified of Farage and they were terrified when the next election came along, they were going to lose substantial votes. Uh, to uh, uh, Farage's party, to UKIP. And they were particularly concerned uh, as to what would happen in the, what was it, I think the 2014 European elections yes, yeah. to get the date right. And uh, in private conversations, I would encourage both Grayling and, and May uh, that the Conservative Party should take on U UKIP rather than adopt uh, their narrative and mm. talk to them about the dangers in doing so. And they did, that was they, not taken on. Absolutely no notice. Uh, and they did the exact opposite. And as a result, ironically, because uh, they could never outkip UKIP. Uh, so, so what eventually happened from my recollection now, because it's a long time since so I looked at the results, UKIP did surprisingly well, I think, in those European parliamentary yeah, elections. Uh, and the Conservatives did poorly. So in a sense, that, that laid, laid foundations uh, for where for we are happened. today. Do you believe that, that, that the position about immigration is ultimately Theresa May's own position or is she just being allowed, allowing herself to be carried along by the wind? I don't know totally the answer to that, but I, if there was a wind she was being carried along, it was a wind which sought out publicity from the what I describe as the British Conservative tabloids and applause from them. Uh, so so I, I would have to take the view that uh, this went beyond simply taking up a political position because of the extent to which she pushed it to the enormous irritation of uh, her European colleagues. Now, if you look at where we are today, the net emigration figures, I think, published for 2018, 
I think they were recently, uh, into uh, into the UK from the other parts of the EU are substantially down, but hugely up from Commonwealth countries. And the British economy is hugely dependent still on new immigrants coming in to take up a whole range of jobs Mm. that wouldn't otherwise be filled. So this has always been a false argument, but it was an argument that I believe had substantial impact uh, beyond a series of other things on the success Um, of the Brexiteers. And so it has proven. Um, Cormac, there's obviously a lot of of talk about Theresa May's own future. We'll be talking to Philip Webster in the next hour, former um, political editor of the Times about all of that but um, surely it remains the case that changing Prime Minister or even having a Brexiteer in number 10 won't make the parliamentary arithmetic any easier for a potential Prime Minister to get over would it? I agree and I think this is the problem I don't see a majority in the House of Commons for any single solution uh, any, know, any, any solution at all, because you, you, the Conservatives are are divided. They can't. They, they, there isn't a majority within them to back Theresa May's deal. Uh, there isn't a majority within them to have no deal. Uh, Labour is whipping its members to block whatever the Conservatives propose. Uh, uh, so I just don't see a majority for any of the solutions that have been offered. And my big concern is that the EU has a suspended sentence by extending the timelines this week, but that we're just going to be faced with the same conundrum uh, in two, three, four weeks' time. Do you think it's fair to say that the EU actually blinked a little bit this week? I saw some British commentary to suggest that the EU had blinked because rather than just face down the UK and say no deal this coming Friday, that they had now sort of backed away from their own timetable and given the UK more time to desperately flail around finding a solution. I don't think so. I think that uh, Theresa May was looking for a long extension and uh, I think the EU took the view after substantial internal discussion uh, that Theresa May is a bit of a dead duck and we cannot, we the EU, cannot allow our internal discussions be completely monopolised by Brexit indefinitely mm. and we're going to give you a shortened timeline. And m- my fear is that if they cannot reach an agreement on an alternative to no deal and if they have already passed legislation that they're leaving, And if the EU says at some point in the middle of May, that's it, lads, time's up, we may well get no deal by default. Um, To to add to the cheery uh, tone of all of this, um, Steve Barclay has been speaking to Andrew Marr on the BBC in the last hour and he said that uh, the indicative votes which are likely to be held in Westminster um, could or would have to be ignored by the British government if they were inconsistent with the Conservative manifesto in the first place. And then added, and this is a lovely cheery thought, that if MPs voted to uh, remain in a single market or a customs union of some sort, uh, then effectively you'd have an irreparable logjam between the government's policy and the Commons policy and that you would need a general election to sort it all out. Lise, you look very thrilled at that. <laughs> I'm just, I, I'm actually sending my thoughts and prayers to my uh, my colleagues in Westminster because, <laughs> you know, I don't think they, they've they probably been yeah. surviving on adrenaline, coffee and three hours sleep and I don't think that situation is going to change anytime <laughs> yeah, soon. Um, I, I really, really, really pity those poor people. Um, a huge thank you to all of you for coming in. Alan Shatter, former Fine Gael Minister for Justice, Lise Hand, columnist with the Ireland Edition of The Times and Cormac Lucy, financial columnist and former political advisor. On the record with Gavin Riley on News Talk.